1: At Luckylandslots.com. Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus turns and conditions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top Five, the Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, my dear friend, the one and only, Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan?
2: Well, press tour is over, and as Stone Temple Pilots once sang, I'm half the man I used to be.
1: (laughs) This week, we are thankfully coming to you back from our cozy pseudo-studio here at the Hollywood Reporter's headquarters, where we just wrapped what feels like an eternity of the television critics' Association, I mean, it definitely president.
2: feels like 16 days. Eternity? I'm
1: 16 days, eternity. It feels like a month, Dan.
2: Oh, that part, I will grant you, it probably does feel like a month. It, it feels like it's been a long journey, and even being in a slightly different location for this is uh, revolutionary. Mostly, I know how excited you are to be out of the air conditioning at the Beverly Hilton. It
1: was cold, and if you had that on your bingo square, you may check it now. I think um, once
2: press tour is over, press tour bingo is comfortably over.
1: Well, Dan, the other thing that's over, your TCA presidency has come to an end. Let me be the last person or the last of many people to congratulate you on a terrific run and keeping that event going and going strong. So congratulations, my friend.
2: Thank you. As the poem goes, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? I could continue, but no one needs to hear me reciting poetry.
1: (laughs) Well, on that note, let's get into this week's headlines. This week, Netflix canceled the OA after two seasons. Oh, and, no. And renewed Mr. Iglesias for a second.
2: <laughs> Stop taunting me with Mr. Iglesias news.
1: Elsewhere, the streamer Alicia Silverstone and Mark Fierstein will star in Netflix's live action comedy Babysitters Club.
2: Will star in Making You Feel Old.
1: That, too. Over at NBC, the network has ordered six additional scripts, not episodes, scripts for the Jimmy Smith's legal drama Bluff City Law more than a month before its debut. That is what they call in the industry early confidence
2: or utter meaninglessness.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, Over at the CW, the 100 will join Arrow and Supernatural and sign off next season. Additionally, network president Mark Petowitz said at TCA he's in early development on drumroll. Wait for it. Another Arrow spinoff.
2: That's what the world needs. Sure.
1: ABC had a busy day at TCA, confirming two more live comedy specials from Jimmy Kimmel and Norman Lear, announcing a Little Mermaid live concert starring Ali'i Cravalho of Moana fame.
2: Of Rise fame.
1: And Carrie Burke's network also found itself in hot water when Afton Williamson revealed that she quit Nathan Fillion cop drama The Rookie after experiencing racial discrimination and sexual harassment and abuse from a guest star and a member of the show's hair department. Dan, that's a developing story. We don't have a ton of info beyond what she posted on Instagram, and we'll continue to monitor that.
2: Yeah, we do not want to jump the gun on that one.
1: Yeah, well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics.
2: Number one.
1: Leading up this week, FX had the biggest announcement out of TCA when it revealed that the third season of its Emmy-winning anthology, American Crime Story, would be called Impeachment and focus on the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal, with the latter also on board to produce Dan, that's a huge, huge announcement. Does it get much bigger at TCA for you?
2: I think probably that was the biggest pure news story announcement. And kudos to FX for not somehow letting that news leak a day before their press tour panel. Though maybe if they let that news leak a day before the press tour panel, John Landcraft would have been more prepared for the, let's say, small backlash that occurred on Twitter with people claiming that having anything that presumably will be anti-Bill Clinton in the media-verse as we head towards the election, and it's scheduled to premiere September 27th, 2020, might have a impact on this election. I don't know that I actually believe that in the slightest. I, I don't think that an FX miniseries that will be watched by a couple million people uh, is likely to have a large impact on how deeply, horribly entrenched we are as a nation. And There's also not anyone with the last name Clinton running in this election. So I am just naive enough to believe that that won't make a difference. But oh, well, we'll see. (laughs) We'll Uh, see how wrong we are.
1: Yeah, John Alanegraff also agreed with you. And uh, this was his direct quote from the stage when asked specifically about the timing of airing impeachment just a few weeks before the election. Quote, I don't believe it's going to determine who the next president of the United States is.
2: Yeah, I am inclined to agree. I just don't see it. I don't think we live in a world in which enough people are waffling on how they're voting in this upcoming election that they're going to... I don't even know what the reaction to this hypothetically... Would be. I mean, the.
1: I mean, as it was raised in the, you know, in the room, is you know, this is basically going to be a target for Trump to be tweeting about. Just like I said, you know, days before the election.
2: But to what end? I I mean, what would that accomplish? It's an FX mini series about a person who isn't running for president. Also, and I tried suggesting this to several people on Twitter, our president does not really watch anything of any particular substance on television. He watches Fox News and watches the opening of Saturday Night Live to find out if they're going to make fun of him. The idea that he's going to sit down and binge watch an FX miniseries and have deep analytical thoughts about it, I find that almost impossible to even fathom. So good luck. Prove me wrong. You know, start start giving me your substantive analysis of succession, President Trump. Uh, I'm happy to hear it.
1: Well, let's talk about the casting. So Impeachment will star Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp, a role she campaigned for since Ryan Murphy first optioned the book that they're basing this on two years ago. Beanie Feldstein of Booksmart will play Monica Lewinsky. And Annalie Ashford from Masters of Sex will play Paula Jones. Dan, thoughts? I, I
2: believe those are three Emmy nominations. You can simply write into the Emmys for what is now 2021. That's a long time in the future to be writing Emmy nominations in for something that hasn't shot a second. I love the Beanie Feldstein casting. I think that is just great. She has been a scene stealer for a couple of years now. And an actual starring role for her seems well-deserved. I was just talking with one of our colleagues in the office a couple minutes ago about the Clintons, and honestly, if I were doing this, I wouldn't have them on camera. I would treat them as entire, not non-factors, because they're obviously important to this story, but I would not have them at all. But I don't think that's really the way that Ryan Murphy goes't I, I, I may
1: have some intel on that Dan Ooh. Um, and we may have a story coming out soon but I'm told that Hillary may or may not have a smaller role she w- will be a character obviously but not central. You're saying that I've, the character everyth- as of I Hillary Clinton, it for now. you are
2: not suggesting uh, yes. that Hillary Clinton is going Obviously to be the character, in Dan. this miniseries. I don't
1: think the real Hillary Clinton <laughs> is going to be in this miniseries. Dan, do you have TCA fatigue? I
2: definitely have TCA okay, fatigue. Good. I do too. Yeah, I, I would, if, if I were them, I wouldn't have anyone playing Bill. It's too obvious a recipe for someone to go and be hammy in their performance. And if the goal is to have this be the story of the women and their role that should probably be to my mind what the story is on the other hand i
1: also think that you can tell not to interrupt (laughs) apologies for interrupting there dan but i think you can tell from the way that they announce this with all the actresses first playing these three characters, I think that speaks volumes of FX intention.
2: And I think that's I think it's the right thing to do. The only question is if John Travolta wanted to whip out his primary colors, Bill Clinton impression again and and do that and sort of atone for how mediocre and utterly out of place he was in the OJ season of uh, American Crime Story. But otherwise, I don't think it's necessary. But I'm very curious because the first season was fantastic television. The second season was also extremely good television. So bring it on.
1: Yeah. Well, in other FX extremely good television news, Atlanta has been renewed for a fourth season and will film concurrently with season three in the spring. There's no return date for either season, but they're basically taking advantage of Donald Glover's availability and they're going to film both seasons back to back, which will certainly help FX up that Emmy tally once that show does officially return.
2: Yeah, that was one of the first things that John Landgraf acknowledged in his talk to reporters at the press tour was sort of going through the numbers that they got for their various shows and the Emmy nominations and kind of explaining all of the nominations for Atlanta that dropped off the board, all of the nominations for Fargo that dropped off the board, the various uh, all the nominations for the Americans that dropped off the board, kind of trying to explain how it was that FX felt so very far in the Emmy nomination slate. And they still have things that obviously are still Players, whether it's
1: Yeah, Pose did well for them, yeah. what we do in the Shadows did well for them.
2: Uh not with the Emmys, but uh less so. But fossey Verden and yeah. Pose both did very well. And so they're at least in the conversation. But yeah, it was it was not a great year, but having Atlanta back whenever it comes back will be good because it's a great show.
1: Yeah. Also coming back, Snowfall will be returning for a fourth season on FX. And uh, wrapping up their day at TCA, which is very eventful, always is, John Langriff also revealed his first slate of documentaries. Um, he'd been talking about pushing into the non-scripted space for, I think it was two years now. And this is the first slate. There's, it's got stuff like, there's a look at, at Tupac, Women in Comedy. There's an LGBTQ docuseries. It's a good slate. I won't rattle it off now, but it's at thr.com slash TCA if you look for it. This is what the beginning of what we're seeing for FX, getting that Disney infusion, where they're really ramping up originals, be it scripted or unscripted.
2: I'm strongly in favor of anyone who wants to push into the non-fiction space, pushing in, I I just think it would be worthwhile for FX to kind of figure out what corner of that genre they want to attempt to fill space in. Because, for example, Showtime has done a remarkable job of kind of grabbing the high ground in music based documentaries, for example. And so, you know, doing a Tupac documentary, sure, you can do it, but it's going to look like you're sort of trying to do what Showtime is doing so right
1: but they've got also got stuff in the true crime space and i think for a first slate it's it's pretty robust it's pretty robust. diverse yeah i mean look they're gonna they're gonna put these on and, and they'll see what works and maybe from that there will be a strategy emerge but i think for an initial slate It's pretty impressive. Oh,
2: by all means, I strongly encourage FX to do this. The more places there are on television for nonfiction storytelling to find a home, the better. And also the more lists of nonfiction storytelling that you agree to do that don't involve documentaries about how hunky uh, Ted Bundy is or was the better, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, that was the point where I left the TCA room and when an exec, and I won't name who it was, described something as hunky Ted Bundy. That's when I knew it was time to go work out of the uh, bar.
2: Yeah, enough. Enough already with the Ted Bundy, folks. Move on.
1: Yeah. Well, that takes us to our second topic of the week.
2: Number two. I feel like we've been talking about this now for a couple weeks, but David Benioff and Dan Weiss have departed their longtime home at HBO and after offers from Disney and Amazon have signed what Sources, Sources close to Leslie, I have no Sources, say is a $200 million overall deal to create TV series and films for Netflix. Films Films, also. uh, That is a a lot of money and uh, good Gracious, that's that's a lot of money uh, Leslie I, I have I have almost no way of processing that amount of money for two people whose TV resume contains one entry.
1: right. but that one entry happens to be one of the biggest shows of the peak TV era. I've lost count of how many awards it's won. It's one of I think didn't it win a Peabody. I don't know. It's oh, it's definitely a, it's one. It's won everything, everything you could under possibly the sun. Win. <laughs> so it's it's basically the show of the moment. It's going to win another Emmy, regardless of how divisive the series finale it's was. It's going to win
2: fifteen to twenty more. Emmys. Yeah,
1: and I mean, look, you know, the big question for me is what Netflix <laughs> is actually paying for, what they're going to get on this return, and this is a story that I'm, I'm reporting out a little bit more right now. But you know, look, Ben F and Weiss have three Star Wars movies. Already lined up for Disney, so I can't imagine Disney or Lucasfilm is going to be all that jazz when they're like, "Yeah, we're going to you know focus on this, and then we're also going to do these other things at the same time." It just seems like Netflix paid two hundred million dollars to be fourth in line for Benioff and Weiss's services, and you know to your point, they have one credit, and it happens to be a good one, but it also happens to be one that. Once it, it strayed from the source material, became a little bit more questionable in terms of quality. And and, and you can speak to that, but and I already feel like we've already done that in some of the other episodes we've recorded. But Amply. it just it doesn't make a, lot, a whole lot of sense to me.
2: It, it's a vaguely strange thing. I, th- I think basically it's Netflix doing what Netflix does more than anything else uh, you know this is simply them saying okay there might have been one or two people who just signed big deals with other people
1: yeah, they, here they they were in on Mike sure they tried to, to get the good place creator he as did everyone else he, i think he had offers from like amazon and warner brothers and a few others and mike opted to stay at universal when when you look at their roster for netflix it's Ryan Murphy Shonda Rhimes Kenya Barris Benioff and Weiss I mean these are some of the creators of the biggest shows of the last decade come on it's like a murderer's row
2: it is and at a certain point that murderer's row is going to have to start producing tv shows and we're going to have to start seeing if any of them are good and if any of them are starting any sort of conversation whatsoever and that is the question to which we can't have an answer yet and yeah. I, I mean
1: shauna's first show won't premiere until 2020 and that's i think what is it two years after she signed that deal I mean, that's half the term. And she's an- got a bunch of other like, eight, you know, seven or eight other projects in, in the works. But this is the one that's, you know, they have this soap that's already been cast, but we haven't heard anything about any of the other stuff.
2: And Ryan Murphy has his first Netflix show coming up, but it's not even a show under his deal, right?
1: Yeah. The Politician is from 20th. Exactly. Um, so after that-, that, he's got the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest show Ratchet, which is also from 20th. And then he's got Hollywood, which we don't know a whole lot about. But that Hollywood show will be his first Netflix original.
2: Yeah, that's the funny but thing. I don't is know we, when that's going to happen. That we, keep, we keep talking about the gigantic Ryan Murphy deal. And we're going to keep talking about and he's the doing impeachment
1: <laughs> and, and impeachment is a Ryan Murphy show, lest we forget.
2: Yeah, so we're still waiting to see what any of these deals are going to actually do for Netflix, other than reminding people that Netflix is capable of buying anyone Netflix wants yeah. to buy. And in the short term... That's a perfectly viable business strategy because it keeps Benioff and Weiss, it keeps all these people from going other places. And as long as. Everyone else is getting into the streaming space for Netflix to be able to say, OK, we have all of these people locked down. There's value in that, regardless of whether they get literally anything at all out of it. It's saying you're you're not going anywhere else to do your nothing. You're doing your nothing yeah. right here.
1: Part of me wonders if this was like a defensive move. You know, another part of my brain thinks like imagine trying to think of Netflix like we think of the Disney Plus homepage where you see the buttons for like Star Wars and Pixar and Disney and all these other big brands and Marvel. Where imagine like like a Netflix home screen that just says Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, you know, Benioff and Weiss. I mean, I don't know how much Benioff and Weiss are household names like a Shonda or a Ryan Murphy, but that's still it's, it's a murderous role. Like if you're thinking about it in terms of baseball, to me the Benioff and Weiss deal feels like Bryce Harper going to the Phillies, where you know he's great in for the nationals, but then he goes to a new city, a new team, lots of new things and he's you know, you kind of not the same player.
2: We have a question that goes to exactly that point. It comes from the unnamed but pointedly named entertainment strategy guy who writes, given the recent Benioff and Weiss Netflix announcement and last month's J.J. Abrams overall deal and this podcast.
1: Technically still hasn't been confirmed. And we should remind listeners that Warner Brothers has not confirmed J.J. Abrams yet
2: pardon me, last month's hypothetical J.J. Abrams overall deal and this podcast's Established Love of Baseball, I was wondering if you could compare the recent blockbuster overall deals to some of baseball's biggest deals. Are Benioff and Weiss a Bryce Harper deal or a Mike Trout deal? Is J.J. Abrams on Albert Pujols or Clayton Kershaw? What is the best big overall deal on the market or the worst?
1: Those are all really great and fun questions. Like I said, I think Benioff and Weiss are probably a Bryce Harper you know, I think Ryan Murphy is probably the Mike Trout because he's the one with the best track record where pretty much everything he touches works. Who would you say Shonda is? I mean, look, she's kind of like the Cal Ripken, to, not to go back too far, but to go back very far. I mean, Cal Ripken the Iron Man, right? Broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played streak. You look at Grey's Anatomy. It just broke ER's record for TV's longest running medical drama. But then a lot of the other stuff that, that she's done hasn't necessarily worked. I mean, Scandal worked, but everything that she's exec produced, How to Get Away with Murder is a Pete Nowak show that, that's kind of limping toward the finish line. Station 19, there's a new showrunner coming in. A lot of the other stuff she exec produces hasn't exactly been home runs. It's kind of been a solid double here and there.
2: And sometimes not even that. She's had plenty of shows that haven't succeeded at all. I think, I think definitely Benioff and Weiss are closer to a Bryce Harper, given that you're
1: given Bryce uh, Harper's current statistics. Yeah, well, you're that.
2: you're effectively saying you have this one gigantic hit, so Bryce Harper has his one MVP season. But, you know, then he had a bunch of other seasons, also comes onto the market really young, so there's value in that. Um, Mike Trout, I, I don't know that I think I would say probably that Greg Berlanti is the closest on that one. I mean, just in terms of overall volume. I mean, that's volume,
1: but those aren't, you they know. They are not massive hits, but, not, he,
2: but he doesn't go for the same thing. And they're so not awards
1: season players. That, that mean, is true. Yeah. So, OK,
2: so Mike Trout is definitely always top three MVP. So he's tough to put in there. Whereas, so I can I can accept Ryan Murphy. Keep in mind, there was a long time when Ryan Murphy was there was the impression that he wasn't producing these acclaimed shows i don't know whether it was actually true or not but you know he was he was the guy behind popular he was the guy behind nip talk he was the I guy love who nip talk. Uh, and sure but he was the guy who for a long time had a reputation as the guy who could bring you a provocative first season of a tv show and then the show would fall off the cliff the next year right he's now largely moved beyond that though i think we still whisper about that but i don't think it's functionally relevant to what his career is at this point. Yeah. I think he's proven enough second seasons. So I don't know if it's exactly a Mike Trout. These are, these are tough questions because we have too much information about the baseball players and not nearly enough information. Yeah. about. The-
1: <laughs> yeah. But look, I think in terms of what the best overall deal on the market is, I think you'd be hard pressed to look beyond Greg Berlanti, you know, look, my wife works for, you know, on Batwoman, which is produced by Greg, but from an objective standpoint, he's got 18 shows on the air. It's a TV record, 18 scripted shows currently in the works, on the air, streaming, however you want to qualify it. And there are more that are out in the marketplace right now or or aren't ready to be announced yet. I mean, he has incentives worked into that deal for other bonuses. The more shows he gets on the air. It's incredible.
2: And yet remarkably, I mean, you he want to talk made,
1: about bang for your buck? He made
2: zero is. TCA press tour appearances this year, though his partner in crime, Sarah Schechter, made many. Three. And his
1: three and his husband made one.
2: Yes. So he was amply represented, if not literally himself represented. So, yeah, whatever. I'm trying to think of who the best exa- who that who that would match up with, because as you say, he's not going to get you Emmys. He's not really probably going to get you the show that's going to attract 25 million viewers. On the other hand, he can basically churn out one show after another, never stopping. Half of the shows that he has are franchisable, and so they can immediately generate spinoffs.
1: And he's grooming a next generation of showrunners, and they are continuing to develop for Warner Brothers and sometimes with him, too. I mean... You know, there's there's another project that's out in the marketplace I can't talk too much about that may change the Emmy conversation around Greg. Ooh. So, I mean, there's your cryptic te- oh, tease.
2: Oh, goodness. We, um, we're not necessarily breaking news, but we're definitely teasing news? Sure. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, you know, what's the best big overall deal on the market and the worst? It's, it's hard to qualify. What, you know, are we talking awards? Are we talking ratings? Are we talking profit? Because if we're talking profit, which is ultimately what most of these deals are about, bringing what kind of financial windfall can you bring to your studio? Warner Brothers bought out the back end on a lot of the CW Arrowverse shows. I mean, that's profit immediately. These shows are sold all over the world. They've got, all got Netflix deals. The new ones will be on HBO Max. I mean, there's a lot of bang for your buck there.
2: I think there is no question, but yeah, so I don't know really whether Benioff and Weiss even really fits with Bryce Harper. It's like trying to think it's probably maybe comparable to, I don't know, whatever the big first deal that Adrian Beltre signed was when he basically was this guy with all this potential who no one thought was going to be anything and then suddenly he had one massive year and immediately left the dodgers sorry it was a
1: contract year yeah sure
2: but he had a contract year so so basically is game of thrones the ultimate contract year season
1: there it is that's a great analogy
2: that's but yeah because otherwise who are they yeah i mean benioff is a novelist i'm
1: reluctant to qualify any of these deals as the worst but considering that there's a lot that i don't understand about why netflix would pay 200 million dollars to be fourth in line I'm going to qualify that as the worst right now just without because I don't have all the information. No, I
2: think I think you're right, though, about the theory that it could just be a defensive maneuver. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think in this marketplace, keeping them from going anywhere else is an entirely valid business strategy, whether it required spending 200 to 250 million dollars that I have no idea.
1: And we should and I should also note, it's a film and TV so they're going to do both for netflix so who knows what could come from that deal when and if they the guys decide to do something that's not star wars so it's a lot of money it's a lot of money well up next let's talk award season dan number three in award season news the emmys will air on fox without a host when it airs in september and dan your, as we mentioned at the top of the show, your TCA tenure officially came to an end with this year's TCA Awards, which I hear was a lovely night where Amazon's Fleabag just completely dominated.
2: It was indeed. Fleabag won the coveted. Sorry, wasn't going to say coveted, but the coveted, prestigious, that one too, prestigious and coveted, uh, TCA Program of the Year Award, which has in the past gone to such shows as Heroes, Season 1, and <laughs> Glee. Um <laughs> But also lots of really good shows that we're not at all embarrassed about. Also, I can completely justify for you why both Heroes and Glee and Empire, in fact, won the TCA program of the year American Idol. We've given a lot of odd things the program of the year award, and I am totally OK with that because they all did things in the broader television universe that explained why they won that award. We've also given that award to the Americans, Game of Thrones, and a bunch of other truly wonderful shows, including Fleabag, uh, which also won Individual Achievement in Comedy for Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Comedy Series for being a comedy series. And yes, it was the only multi-winner at our TCA Awards. So big night for Fleabag, and I hope... Because I think that Fleabag is a wonderful show that this gives it at least a little bit of Emmy buzz slash steam because, you know, I don't expect it's going to have a comparable sweep at the Emmys. But I would love to see it win a couple big awards. I would love to see Phoebe win. I would love to see Phoebe win for writing. You know, those those are the kind of things that I think this might get that show more in the conversation for.
1: Yeah. Do you have any other highlights from the show? I heard David Milch made a rare public appearance.
2: Yes. uh, David Milch made an appearance because Deadwood won our somewhat confusing Heritage Award, uh, which goes to a show of some significance within a certain strange parameter of time off the air and time on the air. It won the Heritage Award and he won a Lifetime Achievement Award and he was there and was in reasonable spirits, much has been made of his declining health. And I would say he did seem, I don't know, he seemed, he seemed a little frail, but he also seemed very happy to be there, happy to be being honored in this moment. He gave a speech that did make me cry. It was it was hugely emotional. And I'm happy that we got to give him that award at a time that he was able to appreciate it, because you don't want to miss out on honoring important people and he is an important person so that was a great moment we also gave outstanding drama to better call saul which is a show that always in my mind deserves more recognition and that will get crushed by game of thrones at the emmys but
1: as will everything else
2: as well everything else so no shame in that yeah, it was, a, it was a great evening. Michelle Williams won our Individual Achievement Award in Drama and gave a lengthy speech, probably over five minutes. Uh, the kind of thing you would never get at the Emmys or anywhere else. This is why we do not televise the TCA Awards, because it's nice to give people the feeling that they can just say what they want to say. And she told a passionate story about loving doing television because it produces a feeling of family and how it's what she's been looking for since she was a little kid auditioning in hollywood and how she founded on fossey verdon it was a very very good and emotional moment and i suspect she will get to make a shorter but still accepting speech at the emmys in a month or so
1: yeah speaking of the emmys so it's on fox this year and fox ceo charlie collier which is a fox entertainment ceo charlie collier announced that he would officially forgo a host for the ceremony. And his reasoning, or spin, however you want to read that, is that going without a host will afford producers of the show an opportunity to focus on some of the big programs that have ended this year, like Game of Thrones, like Big Bang Theory, or Veep, and Orange is the New Black, and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and Jane the Virgin, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And you get the point about the number of impactful shows that are ending this year. But Dan, what do you think of the Hostless Emmys?
2: I have no problems with the Hostless Emmys. I don't particularly buy the explanation for the Hostless Emmys. Or I should Emmys. say
1: the Pantsless <laughs> Emmys, as you said on Twitter, which yes, is just I, to me the, the best thing.
2: Uh, several people suggested to me that that would actually be much more effective to raise the ratings than going Hostless. Yeah, I, I don't buy at all The the, oh, we wanted more time to honor things. A host does not really get in the way of that. That's part of the overall production of the show. If you if you want to honor Broad City, you can honor Broad City. And if you want to honor Game of Thrones, the entire show is going to be dedicated to honoring Game of Thrones. No one's worried that the Emmys are going to leave you going, huh? Did Game of Thrones end this year? Was was that a significant show?
1: I just want to know how much time they're going to spend honoring the final season of Fox's Gotham. Exactly. Said no one ever.
2: Excuse me. I watched every second of Gotham. What are we talking Dan. about? Dan. <laughs> what are we even talking about here, Leslie? Um, no, I think it's as simple as the reason that we've all known the whole time is that basically Fox doesn't have someone who's inherently suited for the job. It's uh, they, they simply don't have the right person. And, and so, Andy
1: Samberg hosted it the last time it aired on Fox. He w- was, of course, a star of Brooklyn Nine-Nine when it aired on that network. And it doesn't air on that network. I anymore. believe
2: it was Jane Lynch before that. So they've they've Lynch had to lovely, yeah. be because they don't have a late night comedy presence. They've had to reach into their programs. Could they have done that this year? Yeah, of course they could have. They could have.
1: They have an animated comedy with Amy Poehler. They've got the kind of they don't own.
2: <laughs> but they also they, they do have multiple former oscar host or single former oscar host however many times it was seth mcfarland so he's available except probably didn't want to do it yeah
1: his show the orville just moved to hulu so but do you think but they that, still have family guy which is now owned by disney
2: but do you think that if they'd offered tim allen that gig he would have taken it i, I think you don't
1: offer tim allen oh, that gig
2: no the question is not whether you do And whether I think it would be a good idea. But do you think Tim Allen says yes? I'm speaking of the person who is their biggest live action comedy star.
1: I don't even want to think about a world in which Tim Allen is the host of the Emmys.
2: Fine. I know there are reasons why. I'm just saying he is the person who could have been a contender and he's not doing it. And that's fine. Whatever. It makes no difference. It it would have done zero to make me more excited for the Emmys if you'd said Tim Allen is hosting. I'm just saying he's the person who might have been a contender. But whatever. Dan,
1: Uh, I'm still not over the fact that you watched every episode of Gotham. That's 100 episodes. I
2: even enjoyed many of them. It was a it was a show that frequently did amusing and, and crazy things and that was in all ways admirable in its production design and costuming. And if you are the Emmys and you wanted to pay tribute to that show's audacious visual styling, you could do worse. That's my only point. They're bound to forget about a bunch of shows of superior quality also like i don't expect they're going to pay tribute properly to catastrophe or broad city or broad city which they should and shows well at least catastrophe was nominated for writing at some point but yeah i don't i don't expect they're going to do that hey fleabag's ending this season apparently so they can honor fleabag there if they're not going to give it other awards anyway i don't buy for a second it has anything to do with honoring fallen shows it has to do with them not having a person and That's okay. Uh, The uh, the Oscar showed you don't need to have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So fine. (laughs) Number four. Now it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. This week, we're joined by a writer-producer who cut his teeth on Saturday Night Live in the office before creating or co-creating Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place, which will tragically end this season. As a producer, his credits also include Master of None, Abby's, and NBC's upcoming comedy, Sunnyside. Welcome, Mike Schur, to TV's Top 5. Hello, thank you for having me. So, Mike, if there's anything that's sort of unifies your TV output to me, it's it's sort of a sense of, of optimism about people and even sometimes institutions that have been maligned. And I know that when it comes to sports and politics, you're hardly immune to frustration and anger at the world. <laughs> Is it hard when you put on the sort of artistic
0: hat to be optimistic, to be hopeful? I don't think it's hard. I actually think it's therapeutic because it allows you to Channel your frustrations and anxieties about the world, or whatever you're writing about, into a potential solution. Like that's the way I thought of it. Especially on, say, Parks and Recreation, government. My whole life has been maligned. Uh, I I was born in 1975, and one of the first things I remember is Ronald Reagan saying, "Government isn't part of the problem; it is the problem," or whatever that line was. And I found the opposite to be true for most of my life, which I know is an extremely privileged statement uh, because I grew up a white kid in Connecticut. But to me, the government was the swimming public swimming pool that I swam in and the public school that I attended and the people who fixed the potholes on my street when there were potholes on my street. So I was frustrated at the idea personally that government is universally maligned and Parks and Rec became a way to sort of say, like, well, what if it isn't terrible? What if it's just a group of people who have a lot of, um, you know, optimism and who believe in the power of community and want people to have fun places to go play soccer and go to festivals? So it's not hard to to take that attitude. Uh, I, in fact, I think it's the opposite. I think it's much harder to live in a sour way all the time. And by the way, this doesn't mean... Megan Amram and Jen Statsky are sitting just to my left. They've worked with me for many years now, and they can attest to the fact that our writer's rooms very frequently are just bitch sessions, (laughs) whatever's happening in the world, because the world is dark and scary and awful and terrible. And so we talk about that all the time. We're not Pollyanna-ish about the problems that we face. But it's nice to write things that propose solutions instead of just saying, Yes, the world is dark and scary and terrible and awful. That doesn't seem, there's no point to that, in my opinion. It's, it's just reflecting. If you're just reflecting back the awful parts of the world we live in, then what are you doing? Just, you know, go outside and start yelling at the sky.
2: But that's incredibly high pressure also. I mean, on the TCA panel today, you were basically being asked when you realized that the religion that you created yourself might not be wholly effective.
0: That's a lot to ask a showrunner of a TV show. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, look, I, the, the good place is a, a different kind of animal, right? Uh, that that didn't start off from like, let's examine this institution of American culture in the way that even Brooklyn Nine-Nine does a little bit. It's like, what's it like to be a cop in Brooklyn? Or what's it like to be a, you know, a parks and recreation supervisor in in Southern Indiana. This was a different animal. This was like, let's do a sort of like long form investigation about the concept of goodness. So it started off from a place of, of like, yeah, this, this is going to get weird. <laughs> this is going to get, this is going to be strange. And we're going to have to come up with a bunch of rules. I had never written anything even remotely what you might call genre-ish or sci-fi-ish or anything. Some of the writers on the staff are big genre fans. Some of them had never aren't at all. But from the beginning, we sort of knew like we're going to have to propose some big ideas here and we might screw it up like and we might propose some big ideas and then find out they're wrong. And that's sort of what I did. Like that point system, like I said, this in the panel, the point system that I invented was the idea of it was what if the afterlife is is accurate? What if it's just mathematically accurate? And what if no one could argue with it? And what if your final score was just your actual final score in terms of how good a or better or person you were? And it wasn't until I got pretty deep into the breaking of the pilot story that I was like, oh, what a terrible system. This is <laughs> it's awful. So I, I don't think it's a lot of pressure as much as it is just like it just requires you to like just keep thinking about what you're doing and 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 not be afraid to kind of reverse course if you feel like you screwed something up.
1: One of the things that I, I'm curious about, you know, look, Good Places 13, and that was originally the pitch per episode. So it was, or per season, I should say, the idea that you've been able to come in and say, "This is closed ended. This is a short order per season." And by the way, it's not going to run for 10 seasons, like which is the, of course, you know, the, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for a broadcast network. Sure. Can you talk a little bit about how that? It's becoming increasingly common, but it's also not something that networks enjoy hearing.
0: Well, yes and no. From a creative standpoint, that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if what you care about is a pot of gold. And if you care about a pot of gold, then you're doing a different—you're not doing this version of a show, right? You're you're, doing—you're trying to conceive of a show that could just run as long as possible. Not— exclusively. There's a plenty of people who conceive of ideas for shows that can run as long as possible, who also care very deeply about the artistic merits of their shows. I'm not saying those things are mutually exclusive. But now the bigger thing is that it used to be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for the network and studio, because it was the only way to get a pot of gold. They would deficit spend every episode. And in order to make their money back, they had to sell it into syndication or to a streamer or whatever. And that was the only way to make money. So but now that's not true anymore. Like, Shows get a little more expensive every year, but they also sell them to Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whoever after a year or sometimes before they air, and that deficit goes away. Like, network TV right now is the closest thing to a no-lose proposition for the network and the studio that you've ever had in Hollywood, at least since the days of, like, I Love Lucy where— you know they made 56 episodes a year and the sets were so cheap that when Ricky slammed the door the entire set shook back and forth <laughs> cuz he was made out of balsa wood like back then like they were rolling in money they still wanted to make as many as they could because they were making money every episode so they they made 50 a year but but in the intervening time, it just got really expensive. And so it used to be that the only way to do it was to maximize the actual number of episodes you made. It's not the case anymore. Like their Networks and studios can turn profits on things that make a total of 10 episodes or 20 or 30 or whatever. So the downward pressure coming from the people who buy TV shows is much less than it was a while ago because they're not so scared about how much money they're losing. They, they're, they're making more money on more individual projects than they ever have.
1: Yeah, and you recently signed a big overall deal to Stay Put at Universal Television, which of course produces parks and you've had a long re- relationship with. They're on Good Place. Yeah. And was that part of the appeal of staying with them, considering that they will soon have a streaming service of their own to, to supply?
0: Yeah, although every place has a streaming service of their own in the next two years. So the appeal to me of Universal, besides just familiarity and it being a place I've worked continuously since January of 1998, was that they are still very good from the studio side about taking stuff elsewhere you know Brooklyn ended up at Fox and Master of None was on Netflix and I've already you know worked on projects that are targeted to be at places other than NBC that you know who hopefully in the next couple months weeks years whatever will get set up other places like they're still invested in that idea they're not completely siloed off in terms of what their strategy is now they might get siloed off because these other places might say like we don't want your shows anymore we only want shows from our people But at least for the time being, they've been very good about saying, like, let's take this idea and find the best place for this idea and go try to sell it there and make a deal there. So it's a very weird world we live in now. But, you know, I, I think that all for for many, many, many reasons, Universal was just the best place for me um, for what I do and what I wanted to do.
1: And you were being pursued by everyone, Netflix, Amazon. I heard everyone was was uh, chasing him.
0: Well, chasing might be strong. Uh, <laughs> they were mildly Making interested offers, in my whereabouts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were <laughs> glancing at their phone to check their GPS tracker on me occasionally to see where I was. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I, you know, I certainly had a lot of meetings at a lot of places, and there, uh, the world is changing so fast that there are very strong arguments to be made to go to any number of different places right now. You know, like, Benioff and Weiss just went to Netflix, and, and like, I'm sure that they did the same thing I did, and they met with everybody in town, and then the, whatever the specific set of parameters was for the shows those guys want to make that was the best place for them. Like, I, that's what everyone's doing right now is just sort of poking around and trying to figure out, like, where's the best fit? Well, when it comes to parameters, you haven't
2: been entirely monogamous to broadcast, but you've obviously shown a lot of dedication and faith to that side of the medium. Are there parameters that you think would make you want to do a show that was for a streaming format, whether it was being able to swear, being able to run
0: 33 minutes per episode, you know, whatever the reasons would be? I mean, there's certainly aspects of like the way that other places do business that are that I'm jealous of. I'm jealous of the time most of, of anything, I think. Uh, I, it is a huge pain in the butt. I've said this many times. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but it's a huge pain in the butt to have to get every episode to exactly the same length. And it's also extraordinarily unlikely that the optimal length of every single episode that you make is exactly 21 minutes and 30 seconds. And, and you know, we release some producers cuts, we call them, of, of Good Place episodes that are anywhere from 45 seconds to six minutes longer than the ones that they air. And those episodes, I think, are the best versions of of that individual episode that I'm very jealous of, but I honestly think that it starts from just what's the idea of the show and where does that show want to live? And like master of none was a show that could not have been done on NBC for like 50 reasons. Netflix was the exact right place for it at the right time. And I would assume that in the future, and this is again, the appeal of being at universal for me personally, there will be things that I'm involved with at some level but that aren't, best suited for NBC. They're best suited for some other place and then we'll try to go to that place and see if they want to buy him. So, in terms of what appeals to me about other places, the time is the biggest thing. Cursing, I don't know. I mean, I love cursing, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I do it too often in my in my own life, but that doesn't make me I'm not jealous of that. Like I think I mean, the thing that most the most people in the world who are casual fans of The Good Place and know about is the way that we got around the cursing problem. And Like To me, the best thing about network TV is I think limitations and obstacles are good for comedy. I think they force you to be inventive and they force you to think hard about what you're doing and come up with interesting creative solutions. I think I've used this analogy many times, but I remember reading a story about the Wachowskis making The Matrix, and they were like, we need $750 million. And Warner Brothers was like, you can have like $48 million. And they made one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. And then when it made a billion dollars, they were like, we need $750 million. And Warner Brothers was like, here, here's $750 million. And then they made two big, flat, fab, flabby, bad movies. And I think that that's because people stopped giving them notes, I'm guessing. And stopped. They stopped having obstacles. Like they had to, they had to navigate an obstacle course in the first movie. They didn't have unlimited money. They had to be really inventive with the way that they did things, and they had to hone their script. And I mean, I'm this is complete conjecture. I've never, (laughs) I've never met them at all. But even if it's not true, it's still a good analogy, in my opinion. It's like network TV gives you obstacles and. I think, especially for comedy, I think Obstacles are very good for comedy.
2: Also, Film Twitter is about to come after you for uh, maligning those two really? flabby movies. Oh, yes.
0: You're kidding me. <laughs>
2: not Film in Twitter stuff. is going to come after me for the Matrix sequels? Uh, oh, oh, you meant the sequels, not the movies they made after. Oh, no, oh, okay. I meant the Matrix sequels. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there's Still? A, there's a renaissance on the second one. It's a crazy, incorrect The one with the long
0: Bacardi ad where they're just raving out in like a weird slow, slow-mo cave? Film Twitter does weird things. I, I can't be held responsible. <laughs> (laughs) for it (laughs) thank you for the warning
1: (laughs) well going back on the on the tv track you know one of the things that I, I think is so interesting about the overall deal market is that so many producers are are getting these big deals, but it's, it's a lot of them, the common thread is that they're prolific. So you are producing multiple shows, some of which you write and some of which you shepherd other showrunners. How do you approach that balance? Is it basically who comes up with the idea or, I mean, Sunnyside is from Matt Murray, who you work with on The Good Place and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec. Can you talk a little bit about that finding that balance, like between how much you actually want to write and where your responsibility and and interest is in in jeoparding new voices? Yeah, that's the
0: that's the fun part of that's the most fun part of being at the exact place I am right now, which is I've now worked with I mean, I've known Matt Murray since 1995, worked with him continuously. He was at SNL with me. He, he, uh, you know, came to all those shows you mentioned. And so, you know, he's a a wonderful person and an incredibly talented person. And there are a number of people who fit that profile who I've now worked with for a long time. And the really fun part of, of having the job I do is that you get to say like, well, what do you want to do now? Like, and if I can help in some capacity, that capacity could be co-writing it. It could just be producing it. It could be doing neither, just giving advice and thoughts and pitching jokes on a script or whatever, That's the most fun part of this to me. Like, I I think my ideal world is something very close to what I have right now, which is I have a show that is mine, technically, that I created and that I work on and that is sort of the main focus of my week-to-week life. But then also there's all these other people who are more than ready to be running their own shows and have a thousand good ideas, and if I can help shepherd them through the weird process of getting a show from an idea to an actual pilot or to a show ideally great that's great like that um there are so many of those people that I've now worked with two of them are in this room to my left and nothing would make me happier than to have all of those people get their shot and like come up with their idea and say what they want to say and I think that you know the the key to this to me is I don't want to be a person who like makes a bunch of uniform stuff I don't want to go in and tell everyone this is how you have to do it or this is what the characters have to sound like or this is who you have to cast or whatever because I think there's plenty of me now and I don't want to I don't want to have like a weird homogenous empire of of a bunch of stuff that just where everybody sounds like me that's not fun what is going to be very fun is there being shows where everybody sounds like Megan Amram and Jen Statsky because they sound different from me, and that would be the ultimate goal to me, is if if the people that I work with and love and admire and respect all get the chance to do their thing, just the way Greg Daniels gave me the chance to do my thing. That's the way that this ecosystem works when it works well, is that people who have some amount of success and get to a point where they can then shepherd other projects through shepherd them through and then back the hell away so that the people who were actually making them can actually execute them the way they want to.
2: But does it feel like you want there to be still a a brand, if not a homogenous voice, you know, things that you want to represent, I guess?
0: I I think that, first of all, just hearing the word brand makes makes my (laughs) Mm -hmm. skin crawl a little bit. Uh, (laughs) I think it's a universal reaction (laughs) to that. I think that um, in lieu of the word brand, let's call it a, a worldview or something, right? Like if it, I have a certain worldview about, about TV and that worldview encompasses a general sense of how people should be presented and a general sense of what ideas are good and what ideas are bad and a general sense of what a TV show ought to try to do and a general sense of what kinds of people should act on that TV show. And that worldview now, after a while of doing this, is kept consistent by the people who work with me on these shows and by the people like Allison Jones who casts all of them and by the people like Morgan Sackett and David Hyman who produce all of them. Like there's no, the, the brand is the people and the the writers who I've worked with and who I've shared a writer's room with for between three and 15 years are, The reason that they've been around that long is because we sort of get each other and we sort of fit in some weird way. And we all which is not to say that we all have the same perspective on anything. It's it's merely that the creation of a TV show will remain generally consistent because the people who are doing it are all sort of like-minded for a better word like-minded is second only to brand in terms of (laughs) making my skin crawl but but it's slightly better but uh but that's that's how i I don't worry at all i don't think about or worry at all about any of that stuff because i feel like it's going to happen naturally because i I, um someone who would make a tv show that were wildly what you might say off brand for me personally i'm not working with that person at all right so it doesn't that doesn't um concern me it's just the feeling though that like you knew
2: what the Mary Tyler Moore cat stood for. You knew what Ubu, you knew what Ubu stood for you, you know? So yes, those were brands, but they were also kind of worldviews.
0: Yeah. Addition. Yeah. Uh, that's true. And yes. And, and it like those, those logos that like sit Ubu sit right. I remember being like, when I saw that, I was like, yes, I like this. On the other hand, um, before Curtis Hanson died, I, I met him at a party. And I said, I have to ask you this. I'd never met him before. And I was like, there is literally nothing consistent about what you do. It's fascinating. He made, like, In Her Shoes, and he also made L.A. Confidential, and he also made like that weird poker movie that uh, Eric Bana I think was in. And, and I was like, how do you, what do you what's, your, what's your deal, man? Like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you do this? And he sort of shrugged and was like, I do what I think is interesting. I find an idea I think is interesting. And I, I, you know, oh Eight Mile, he'd also made 8 Mile. Like, what a crazy career. And he just said, I do what I think is interesting. I find an idea I like and I find an actor I like and I pursue it for a while and I do it and then I move on. And you wouldn't say that Curtis Hanson had a brand, But I think you would say that he had a very good and happy career and he made a lot of really interesting stuff. And so I, I would rather go at it that way. I would rather say like, I'm going to, I'm going to find people that i like, and I'm going to find ideas that I like, and we're going to try to make them and some of them will work and some of them won't. And at the end of the day, we'll all be happy with, with the, with the mission.
1: Sunnyside is a comedy about immigration, but given what's happening in our country right now, are you, how are you balancing the humor with maybe taking on some more serious subjects? Given Sorry, what's what
0: is happening in our country right now? I'm not. I haven't been paying attention. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> where do I begin? Um, how do you how do we balance the comedy yeah. with the serious stuff? And well,
1: how, And how serious will you get?
0: Look, the show is a comedy. The show was conceived of in its original form by Cal Penn five years ago. It is not a reaction to this in the same way that The Good Place in some weird way seems like a reaction to Trump, but isn't because it was conceived of and written before. The entire first season was done before the election, or almost all of it. So it's not a reaction to it. It's a very present issue in the lives of many, many, many Americans Uh, like all immigrants and then all people who care about immigrants and even people who don't care about immigrants. Like it's a thing that's out there all the time now. So I, it's first and foremost, a comedy show. It is, it is attempting to be, we described it all through the process of developing it as a patriotic comedy. It's about what it, why people love America and why they want to be in America. And there are many obstacles to loving America, frankly, and to also being in America if you're an immigrant. And those obstacles include a very Byzantine process of application for immigration. They also include a number of people who don't want you here. And they also include a current president who uh, actively doesn't want you here and is telling you all the time. So I think that, like, the main thrust of what you're going to see on that show is comedic stories about a group of people who came here from all different places in the world, who all love the country and all want to be here and are all just trying to do their best to to pass that test, to take that class and pass that test and join a place that they truly love. The underlying background, the sort of like low rumble that goes through it is going to be that like that's very, very hard right now. In fact, it's probably harder right now than it's been for at any time in history or at least for a great while. That doesn't mean that episode to episode you're going to get any kind of story about um, about immigration officers. You might, or you might not. It's just the sort of underlying threat that accompanies any, any group of stories about immigration. The first three episodes are written. Two of them have absolutely nothing to do with the actual process of immigration, and one of them has a lot to do with the actual process of immigration. So I think it's like anything else. The writing staff is pursuing legitimate, real, true-to-life stories about what the immigrant experience is like. They're going to write those stories some of those stories have to do with very silly stuff that has nothing to do with the drama that's unfolding nationwide, and some of it are directly going after the drama that's unfolding nationwide. But the primary goal is always going to be entertaining and funny. We talked about early on when Cal was sort of explaining the idea to Matt and me. We said, "I, I remember thinking like the goal here should be to make a show. You know, like when you watch a Michael Bay movie, and there's like a there's like a moment at the end where there's like a slow motion montage of." Like kids, like Norman Rockwell painting, looking kids, like like flying a space shuttle, and there's an American flag flapping in the breeze, and you're hearing like a John F. Kennedy speech or something. Like it's so overblown and and like ridiculous in terms of how Amer- rah-rah American it is. The goal is literally to make a comedy that makes you feel like that, a comedy about immigrants that makes you feel like that. It makes you feel like the things that this country is capable of and is the potential for this in this country of for greatness is so massive. And people love it that much. And the idea of it is so great that if we can make people feel like they felt at the end of Armageddon, (laughs) then we will have done our job.
2: But the ridiculous thing about that, of course, is that 5 years ago or 10 years ago that sentiment wouldn't have been at all political the idea of people wanting to come into the United States and be Americans was literally America that's right
0: but now it's become explicitly political so but y- but <laughs> I think the I think the point the show is trying to make at some level is it should not be political it should not be a politically controversial stance to say I'm an immigrant who loves America and I want to live here like there's nothing inherently political about that that is literally literally, factually, how the country was founded. So the idea that it's become a political sawhorse or whatever you call it is not the fault of the people who want to come here, and it's not the fault of the idea of the country. In fact, it is the idea of the country. So that is exactly the point. The point would be, our point would be, it's not a political position to say, I am from somewhere else, I love America, and I, and I want to become a citizen. That is inherently not a political position position, it has become a political position because of this debate and because of what's happened in the country. So we're trying to get, we're trying to approach the problem apolitically as much as we can.
2: Well, along those lines, are you somewhat tremendously relieved that you never had to see how the optimism of Parks and Rec played against Trump's America? <laughs> or alternatively, do you kind of desperately want to see how that attitude would I, work?
0: I have thought about this a lot and I, and I have a very boring answer, which is I don't know. I, <laughs> I honestly don't. I don't know what would have happened if in season four of Parks and Recreation, if the election of 2016 had happened and what it would have done to us and how we would have changed course or whatever. I mean, to be fair, we introduced a character when Leslie Nope got onto the city council who was basically... He wasn't Donald Trump, but he wasn't far from Donald Trump. He was a self-interested guy who was corrupt, and he uh, he uh, moved to Pawnee because he was a dentist, and Pawnee didn't have fluoride in their drinking water, and the main business in town was a candy company. And everything he did as a member of the city council was an attempt to increase his own personal fortune, and he had absolutely no qualms about doing it. He was openly corrupt and blackmailed Leslie into giving him her bathroom and did a bunch of stuff and like that. And celebrated it. And, and celebrated jammed, it and was happy. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, he made T-shirts. And And by the way, he also loved golf, for the record. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, you know, it's not like this this stuff didn't start with Trump. You know, this stuff has been around for a very long time. So I I don't know that we would have done anything differently. I I think it would have played out pretty much the same. It's just that Jeremy Jam would have seemed like a reaction to Trump instead of being a precursor.
1: Yeah, wrapping up, you know, look, the reboot culture is, well— we don't need to explain to you what it is. But, <laughs> uh, the Office exploded on popularity with, you know, Netflix is now moving to NBC's upcoming streaming platform. First, I was curious to get your thoughts on what you what you think of that and and how big that show has gotten years after it ended and the rumblings that there could be a new take on it with a new cast.
0: Mostly what I think of it is that I'm annoyed that people yell "moe's" at me now because that had gone away <laughs> for a while and now it's back. Like I picked up my son from baseball camp the other day and I was like, "Hey, buddy, ready to go, And he looked at his counselors, and his counselor looked at me and went, "Hey, how's it going?" And I was like, "God <laughs> damn it, you, t- <laughs> you told he told him I was Mose, didn't you <laughs> uh that uh, it is wild though that that's happening it's 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 very i mean well deserved i that i mean I only worked on the first four years of that show, but i've been rewatching it with my son it 's quite good it 's a very good t v <laughs> show uh, so i you know it's again it 's part of this new weird world we live in now, where this thing that ended many years ago that started i mean I moved out here in two thousand and four to take that job it 's fifteen years ago that I started writing on that show, and suddenly a bunch of ten year olds are super into it it 's very weird i mean as far as what the future holds, I don't know. You can't do that show. Frankly, you can't do that show without Greg Daniels running it. I'm not sure he has any interest in doing it. I have no idea if he does or not. I don't know why, really why he would, since everyone still loves the original so much. It doesn't seem like there's any cause to reboot it. People are just continuously watching the original one. So I don't know. I, I Look, this might be a craze. You know, this reboot thing, it might be uh, might be here to stay. We might just get caught in a loop where just every 15 years, the entire slate of TV shows from 15 years ago gets rebooted and put back up again.
1: <laughs> That's truly the bad place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't know. I, it's I mean, look, it happened. The, the thing that is interesting to me about this briefly is it happened in movies. No one talks about this, but like this is exactly what happened in movies. People just in order to cut through the white noise and the clutter people just started remaking movies with familiar titles and some of them are great and some of them stink. And so I kind of feel like that's probably what's going to happen with TV shows too. Like they'll be rebooted sometimes with the original cast or sometimes with all new casts, but this isn't a new phenomenon. I mean, Hollywood is incredibly good at wringing blood from a stone and they are like the idea of like, we can make this thing that people have heard about and that will increase our chances of monetizing it by X, Y percent, whatever. Like that's, they're going to keep doing that, and they'll they'll do it forever. So I think that the 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 mistake would be to do it simply to do it. If there's a new reason to reboot a show or remount a show, great. If there isn't, find a new idea.
1: Well, The Good Place returns for its final season, followed by Sunnyside on September 26th on NBC. Brooklyn Nine-Nine will return mid-season. Mike, thanks so much for joining.
0: Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include The Terror and Lodge 49 on AMC, Succession and Our Boys over at HBO, Own's David Makes Man, Why Women Kill on CBS All Access, and, you know, following up from last week's Critics' Corner, Dan, we've now seen two episodes of the new BH90210, show within a show, revival, reboot, I'm not sure how what to call it, soapity, I think that's what uh, Jenny Garth called it, a soapity. I don't know. Dan... There's a lot going on.
2: I missed that panel, so I don't know what Jenny Garth called it. I have, however, watched two episodes, so I know that it's okay. I I don't think it's bad. It's it's an amusingly complicated conceit for something that could have been very simple. And I appreciate that they at least put the effort into trying to do something more complicated. The reality is I don't think anyone working on the show is... I don't know, talented enough, frankly, to give it a high ambition, smart take. So they have a, they have a funny conceit that they drag out sometimes decently. They get a couple laughs. To me, they didn't do a very good job honoring Luke Perry at all, but that's, that's on them. I don't think they wanted to do it poorly. I think they just weren't equipped
1: yeah, to do it. Well. And we also don't know who wrote the episode, right, Dan?
2: Well they, they the episode did air with a writing with writing and directing credits, so that's that's fine. But it sounds as if there was some Dragged out process and trying to figure out stuff. I mean,
1: keep in mind that a bunch of writers and the showrunner left some, you know, weeks ago before this was while this was coming together. But anyway, let's talk about some of the other stuff that's coming up. There's a lot. There are genuinely
2: good things to watch on TV over the next week. Just
1: tell me, Succession season two is as good as season one. I've
2: seen the first two episodes and they're terrific. They're they're just great. It's it's everything you would want it to be if you if you dig the vibe of Succession. And some people I know do not it is exactly what you want. It is full of, you know, lacerating, profane language. The performances continue to be great and the story continues to get more complicated and twisted as it progresses and as people aspire to greater power. So that would be the thing I would tell people primarily to watch this week. If there's another second year show that you should check out, everybody really should be watching Lodge 49 on AMC, but I'm not sure everyone would actually like Lodge 49 on AMC. And at this point, I can't really explain to you what Lodge 49 is even about. It's a odd Southern California secret society, slacker dramedy that has a vibe that is completely unique and it makes me laugh and it makes me smile. And I I just love settling into its rhythms. And the second season starts out totally confidently. I think it is a great cast from White Russell to uh, Brent Jennings to Sonia Cassidy and all of these supporting players. Uh, one of the, one of the high powered executive producers on the show gets in a little acting this season. Not going to say who that is, but that's fairly okay. obvious. And it's, it's just a really good show. Again, won't be for everybody. It's, it's completely and totally a vibe and either you catch it or you don't. The same's actually true about uh, David makes man on own. It's, it is legitimately one of those shows that is actually a tone poem, even though critics often use the phrase tone poem when they don't know how else to describe something. It is, But it is a poetic depiction of a young man growing up in Florida being torn between different worlds. And it's it's quite beautiful at times. So you've got that the new season of The Terror, The Terror Infamy. On AMC. Uh, it has nothing at all to do with the first season. So it, if you haven't watched the first season, A, you should, but B, whatever. It is a spooky ghost demon story set around the internment of American citizens of Japanese descent in World War II. And it's just a version of this story that we haven't seen before. And I appreciate the audacity of turning this into an anthology and this is a good way of doing it so that's a lot of things to watch and i'm already terrified about what i'm going to find on my dvr if i ever get home
1: (laughs) yeah well that feels like a good place to wrap things up we will be back soon with another episode and until then please be sure to check out josh wiggler's series regular which this week features a great interview with the showrunner from the handmaid's tale
2: If you like us, be sure to subscribe to TV's Top 5 on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. If you really like us, rate us. If you really, really like us, write a review. You can also tweet at us. We're always happy for people to tweet at us. And if you have questions, comments, concerns, or baseball-related questions, you can email us at TV's Top 5, that's the number 5, at THR.com. Until next time, Leslie.
1: Until next time, Dan.